Welcome to Redressing Histories, a podcast. This series seeks to foreground the work of African diaspora researchers whose work and histories are currently underrepresented and overlooked within publications, academia, museums and the media. This podcast has been sponsored by the University of Brighton Centre for Design History and the University's Equality and Inclusion Fund. My name is Ellie Michaela Young. And today I will be speaking to Kadian Gosler about her experiences as an African diaspora researcher. Kadian is a PhD candidate within the Fashion, Textile and Design Department at the University of the Arts London. I'm going to start with the same question I have with everybody else, just really just to find out more about your research and practice. So in plain terms, my research investigates the development of a woman-centered and experience-based design process for bra wearables, which is a subset of smart bras. I see my research as having three strands, like a plat. The first is defining and delineating the smart bra field, which most people don't know what smart bras are. I'm beginning yeah, to understand. Neither. No. <laughs> I mean, when I say that, people are like, what are, what are, you know, what is smart bras? I've never heard of that. Smart bras are bras that incorporate technology, whether it's chemical, thermal, electrical, or mechanical elements. So for example, there are smart nursing bras. They help the the mom-to-be or the breastfeeding person. They help them to estimate the times and the amount of milk they're expressing. And sometimes they also massage the milk ducts because, you know, that's something that happens often is mastesis. Mm -hmm. So it it, uh, massages the ducts and it it sets these data for them where it can be recorded through their phone when these things happen and what's going on. So they can have a record of this. It's pretty cool when you think about it. There are health-based smart bras. And these are for like massage physiotherapy or recording the wearer's sleep states. Quite a few of, of these health-based, just a, an everyday bra that you wear. Okay. There's one that is um, with an audio recording to play sounds. And mm-hmm. the idea is to help relieve the wearer's stress during the day as they're wearing it within their bra. And there's preventative health-based bras. And this field is primarily um, cancer, early uh, breast cancer detection bras. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a few concepts in there. And there's smart sports bras, which you may or may not have seen on the, the market commercially. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess I feel like they were everywhere between 2013 and 2015. Um, okay. Stella McCartney, Adidas, uh, Victoria's Secrets even had a smart sports bra. And these bras would help monitor your heart rate, um, your breathing okay. pattern, uh, calories burned, Um I, I was more interested in it because it's like, to me, wow, <laughs> technological right. advancement. So then there's also smart um, protection-based bras, which this one, I'm really, it's so weird. I feel like it's, I'm gravitating to this a lot in my own sort of personal life. I, I want to know mm-hmm. the psychology behind it. And it's bras mm-hmm. that have a GPS system built in and it has Bluetooth connected as well. So okay. if you're I guess out at night and you might have, you know, you're being attacked or assaulted, your heart rate spikes and the bra then triggers a message, oh. um, sending a, a message to whoever you have pre-selected in your phone that you're mm. at this location and you may be in trouble. So send help. And then there's another one that has a shock repellent. So if someone grabs you mm-hmm. hard enough and they're touching your bra, 
it gives them off a shock to them to like almost like a taser <laughs> to like oh you know God. send them back off their feet. I'm seeing a lot of this now coming, and I'm like, I'm really interested in the psychological aspect of the wearer who would wear a bra like that. Like, where's your mind? You know, do you feel safe with it on? And do you, or you know, do you feel like if you don't have it on, you may not be protected? I don't know. I'm really, really interested in, and I wish we can get these bra on the market so I can do a study on it. <laughs> So you are looking at smart bras, but what aspect of smart bras does your research look at in particular? Or what are you designing? Well, as this is something new, this is literally like maybe my first year and a half of research is Mm -hmm. arguing that there is this field because I kept getting asked and, you know, you know, this question is like, how do you know it's a field? How do you know it's not just a you thing? And I'm just like, (laughs) it's not just a me thing. You Mm -hmm. know, I went straight into overload on research, gathering as much data far and wide that this is a field. It may not be Mm -hmm. front and center, but it is actually front and center because it was commercial for quite a bit. um, Like I said, and then it, it, you know, it didn't continue on. We're not quite sure why. So it is a feel, and that first part of my research is documenting this, this notion that there are these sectors. They may mm-hmm. be operating separately because they're operating under this academic research here being mm-hmm. done here, this being done, a lot of it that came out of China, um, quite a few that um, came out of the U.S., but they're not all being placed together in, in some okay. sort of system that we can all say, these are smart bras, it is a thing. Mm-hmm. But you get these one-off articles that are like, is smart bra a thing? Do women want smart bra? Like, is it the future? And it's sort of like, guys, like bring this together. You're just throwing out these questions for us, but we don't even know what, you know, for the general population, they don't know what smart bras are. So if you're throwing out a concept, you haven't given them the background to what, you know, this field is, they're going to think it's just, I don't know what they think smart bras are. Actually, I've never asked them, what do you think a smart bra does? Um, But it's the idea that they can possibly help the wearer in the future. Um, okay. And before, before I even jump into what do I want to design um, within my research, I needed to know what do women want? <laughs> and mm-hmm. so this is like the second strand of that plot that I was telling you about, which is the participants in my research. I needed to know what, what they want. And believe it or not, separated by age group and by demographic, mm-hmm. anyone you ask, they're going to say they want something else. It's going to be based on their experience with it. You find this out simply by just asking someone who is a larger breasted woman or what is Me. it that you want of a bra? And they're just, I just want a bra that freaking fits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They don't want a smart, they just want a simple bra that fits. Yeah. Whereas if you can go into a shop and, you know, take a bra off the rack, you're, you're open to bras that have all these, all these other functionalities because you don't have such mm. a difficult time with it. Some of those bras are so expensive. I get that a lot <laughs> when they start talking about it. They're like, well, I wear this large size and I already have to page this much for it. If you put mm. technology into it, how much more is this bra going to cost? And exactly. I'm sort of like, you know, that's not really within the realm of my research. <laughs> and I'm not the one to blame. <laughs> I just want to come up with the ideas and help you guys develop it. But pricing, I do understand, will be an issue. <laughs> with anything, it will be an issue. A lot of that's the first you know, question is how expensive is it going to be? Mm. But I, before I get into the design of the process or, or the product, I wanted to know what the women wanted. And in order to decide what they wanted, I wanted to know how they've experienced the bra throughout their, their time. Okay. And I didn't want just any <laughs> bra wear demographic. 
after reading so much research in my field, I realized there was no study that had been done with Black women. Okay. Um, and I found two, two out of all mm-hmm. the studies I've looked at, I found two where one had one Black woman and the other had about a couple of okay. About one or two in there. So, so it's just that's, that's it. So there's no full studies, just one and two. There's two where they mentioned that they had a black participant, and I was just like, "That's it. There's no way you could study the bra and not have mm. a black woman, you know, group in there." Like, you know, they wear bras too. <laughs> that was kind of my my question. <laughs> Do they know they wear bras as well? Shockingly, but it hasn't been studied, and I was sort of mm. wondering why. Why do they get chopped off? you know, being a part of the research. And oftentimes they're saying, oh, they just weren't around in that that area they were studying, which I could see that if you were studying mm-hmm. in, in Asia or something. But a lot yeah. of it that was based in the UK, again, I, I wasn't finding a lot of... Yeah, um, we, we don't exist in the UK. I just, I just let you know that we don't really exist. Only when we're a problem do we manifest, but otherwise we don't really exist. It would seem so in research. Um, you would think that, but I think what got confusing for me was when I would read the title and it would say women and I would mm-hmm. open up this paper and I would start reading it. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until I got to the methodology section and I'm like, oh, participants, who's you know part of this? Yeah. And then you, you see how narrow it is. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, from 25 to maybe 35 years of age, sometimes a little younger, maybe 20 mm-hmm. Um white female and then you're just like that's it that's mm-hmm. that's just this small sector <laughs> of, of the, the just that's it so it's just like I really was like then dedicated to just saying there's no way I can do this study and I could do this research without focusing on black women there's just no way okay. I'm a black yeah. woman and yeah if, you know <laughs> if willing I will become a mature black woman and I want to be a part of a study. Mm. I want, you know, the voices to be there. So I, I decided to look at the age group of 45 to 64 years old, which is already known as the invisible age group in terms mm-hmm. of fashion anyway. There's yeah. not a lot of things going around within that age group. So it's a marketing term. The invisible group is a women between 45 and 64. Okay. And so I was like, I want to do that group. And then <laughs> to add, to focus on Black women, it then became like an, the hyper invisible group because it's like... <laughs> You guys aren't there at all in fashion. Yep. No. And it's funny because when you look at TV or, or anything, a lot of the, the top actresses are actually within this area. They're in this mm-hmm. area right now. You yeah. know, yeah. they're who was, we're watching on TV right now. It's American that you're talking about, American women. I don't think we have anybody in Britain of that age group who's black. I mean, the only person that comes to my mind is somebody like Shirley Bassey. Oh, my days, there was a woman on a programme called Desmond's whose name I cannot remember at all. There's been so very few of them in Britain that you can actually say, this is representative of me or this is my role model, especially on TV. I mean, we do find other places to look for our role models, but you're not going to find big names in TV that are black. See, that's the thing. I, you're right. It is America because I'm, I'm, I'm like, I look up and for a moment I was just like, who are the women within this age group that I can count? And mm-hmm. like, there is, um, oh my God, Viola Sorry. Davis. Viola Davis. And I was just about to cut you back to say Carmen Munro. That's who the woman is from Desmond. Yeah. So, but we do have a lot more in America that we can yes, look you at do. and, yeah. and yeah. say, these are the women within that role, but you're not seeing them in fashion 
And let's yeah. just be clear. Um, even Gina Torres, I think she's also within this age group. These, yeah. uh, she's um, from the, the TV show Suits. Um, she's these women can put on some fashion and, and sell fashion. <laughs> they really can. I mean, mm-hmm. they play these these women walking in you know fierce walks in movies or uh, TV shows in suits that we're all like, I would wear that, but they're just not there. And so. Yeah. I really wanted to study this age group and have their voices heard, especially when we look at it in terms of technology. They are out, if they're absent in fashion, they are just not there in terms of technology research. Yeah. No one's yeah. looking exactly. at this group when they exactly. talk about technology. It becomes this, <laughs> this devil roadblock of like, what are you bringing together and can you mm. bring it together? And the fear of, oh, can I, which is really something that happened. I was like, can I bring this together? Is this something I can tackle? And so I really wanted to, but I, I was getting my supervisors are saying, well, if, you know, they're not in the research, maybe you can just do something with like just white participants or it doesn't have to be about race. You could just say women within this age category. And it was just this push to sort of like, just say women within this Mm -hmm. 45 to 64. And I was like, no, like I really want to to focus on black women. And, and then of course I got the, well, why don't you do a comparative study then? And I was sort of like, "Mm, okay, you know, when you say comparative study, where are you pushing me? And so it was along the lines of, why don't you just compare their experiences and, and make your research about that? And I realized that's not where I wanted my research to go, but Mm. I didn't put up a fight for too long. I did do a comparative study in my earlier years, my second year Mm. on um, the experiences of this age group between black and and white women in their broad experiences. Mm -hmm. And doing this survey, no, you know, lo and behold, there there are some differences in how they experience the bra. Mm-hmm. And these differences are within their identity and their sexuality. These two groups, and these are Western, both Western white and Western black women, they do differ okay. on how they experience the bra, especially socially. And I thought to okay. myself, whoa, you know, I just found something. <laughs> like something, I found something. Wow, like here it is. Like here's something that's saying that there is a difference um, Mm -hmm. and we can't just blanket all of these other studies that just focused on either Asian or white women and say, Oh, well, all women will experience it this way. No, like there's a fundamental difference. Um, And and that was sort of the catalyst for me to argue. We found this point. Now I can just focus solely on black women in my research and their experience. And I can go from there. So please do not argue with me about doing a comparative (laughs) study because I've just given you something that says it's not necessary. It's no longer necessary. You know, we have a difference in experience. And so a large part of the rest of my research was trying to understand what that is like and using the, um, using interviews to understand their lived experiences and hearing black women talk about, you know, the bra for them, which is, again, I'm a bra designer by nature. It was exciting to sit down and hear them talking about how they shop and how they pick it out and how they, they want to feel when they put it on and when they leave their house and how it's an important aspect in in getting them to look presentable, the right way for them. That was a big thing to sit down and hear. And it, and it does vary. Everyone doesn't want it to be, you know, their breasts to be up in center, you know, but then <laughs> yeah. the dress needs to fit and I want my breasts to look this way. And they have specific ways that they're, they're documented in. It was just, as a designer, it's like, wow, um, it's great to hear. <laughs> What is it that first got you interested in fashion and textiles? This goes back, and I was thinking about this before, and I was just like, when did I start even being into fashion? And I realized I wasn't into fashion for a very long time. I was into 
lingerie at an early age. And I think just about when I hit puberty, I became interested okay. in lingerie. And it's, you know, how, you know, how are the two correlated? Because my mother is Jamaican. <laughs> And my mother does not want to go shopping at this store, that store, and this store. She would just buy something. And if it didn't fit her and she's like, oh, I like it. It's not going to fit me. She would just buy it in my size. So at a very early age, I, I had the nicest underwear out of all my <laughs> friends. Okay. And we, we would go in the bathroom and I would, do, you know, I remember going to middle school and saying, oh, look at the bra I'm wearing today, you know, and then they would be showing me their bras and I'd be like, oh no, yours is not as good as mine. <laughs> like, mine has lace. You know how exciting I was when I was just like, you know, oh, look at the lace on this. And it was exciting to like, you know, to do that. Um, and I realized that's probably what got me so interested in, in lingerie is my mother's, you know, her interest in it. That like, I don't know if anybody still does this nowadays, but she would lay out her clothes the day before, the night before, okay. before her work the next day. And okay. I would, I'm nosy. I would go in her room and I'd peep about and I'd see like where her lingerie is laid out and what she's wearing with it, you know, just, you know, peering in. And I'd be like, when I get older, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and I'm do gonna, you? I, who has time to lay out clothes? <laughs> <laughs> I do not lay out clothes the night before. It's like, ooh, if I open my eyes, I'm like, okay, start thinking about what you're wearing today. But <laughs> I, I did when I was younger. I thought that was what I would do because it just seems so cool to have your mm -hmm. like, fashions laid out. And, and then I went to high school of fashion industries about, oh my gosh, how old is I? About 14. And then I started studying fashion. So just fashion in general, making clothing, sewing, designing, embroidery. And it was towards the end of my high school when Mrs. Nelson, <laughs> I don't remember her name, my, my professor or teacher, she was like, you should put these, you know, lingerie pieces that you design in the fashion show. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be judged. No, thank you. And she's like, no, no, I'm going to put your name down. <laughs> and so everybody had to put their pieces in. And I actually won. And I was shocked. I won for my nightwear pieces. Like, mm. my mind blown. I was like, oh, what? They like my stuff. Ooh, okay. And she was just <laughs> like, okay, now you need to think about college. And maybe you should go to FIT and study lingerie mm. design. And I was like, Mm. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know if this is for me. Um, and she put my name down for a few scholarships, which I am mm. to this day grateful for her because I, I received the scholarships and I was able to then go to FIT and study lingerie there. And then I won Critics' Choice Award my first year, my second year for my degree. And I was kind of like, okay, so maybe this is a thing that I can do. <laughs> you okay. know, I, I'm doing lingerie. I'm, I'm getting some awards for it. Maybe this is something that I can do. And it does make me happy to do. And from there, I was just like, okay, I left. I got all my degrees. I went to work in the industry as a lingerie designer. I got a little bored. I was like, I need to know more. I went back to school and did my master's for merchandising and marketing. Mm -hmm. And I realized then that I was like, there's something missing for me. I love lingerie. I like to look at it. I like to talk about it. I like okay. to see it on other people. <laughs> I like when other people tell me about their lingerie. I really love this thing, but it's just like, well, what, what are all the parts that I want to do? I don't want to just sit and, and, you know, design, design. I want to interact with my consumers. I want to know more about it once it's sold. I want okay. you to come back and tell me, where did you wear it to? What did you wear it with? How did you feel? <laughs> like, that's what I wanted. I needed, I need the whole rundown once you've, you've put it on and you left with it. Um, so you're going to have to sell your bras with an app where people can record messages on their app and tell you about their experiences. 
So I shouldn't say this because it's probably embarrassing, but I actually do go to other people's website and read the reviews that women write about their purchases. <laughs> I know it's weird. I, I'm not going to buy the bra, but I just want to hear what the women are saying, you know? Mm. And sometimes they'll say, this didn't fit. And I'm like, oh, I wish they said more. You know, I, I would go and read reviews because I want to okay. know. I, I really want to know what they're saying behind the scenes. And I mean, there are tons of Reddits where women go on and talk about this, which I'm a part of all of those groups as well. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's really exciting to just know that it's not just putting this bra out there. It's also the wearing of it, the consumers that I'm interested in. And then finding out that you can do a PhD and put all this together. I was like, that's a thing. You know, I mean, (laughs) when I realized that that was a thing, (laughs) I I then went to tell other people and they're like, no, that's not a thing. And I was like, no, no, you can do a PhD in like fashion. But like, why would you do a PhD in fashion? And I was just like, okay, maybe you're right. Why would I do a PhD in fashion? But then I was like, it's stuck with me. I was like, no, no, it's exciting. You would be studying this. You wouldn't have to worry about, you know, anything else, but studying and getting all this information that you crave. Mm -hmm. And finally, I was like, you know what? I won't let anyone make me feel like a PhD in fashion is less than I'm going to go do this thing. Exactly. Exactly. Here I am. Excited still. Year four. when I'm teaching students that's one of the things that I'm always saying to them don't write about things that you think I want you to write about write about what interests you and what's important to you because if you don't you're going to get bored and you'll get bored fast and then it becomes difficult but I I guess it's also about what is considered valid research and what isn't considered valid research and for some fashion although it's got an established field now for some it's still considered frivolous and not important. I can tell you that based on some of the comments I got (laughs) when I said I was, oh yeah, I was going to leave New York and come to London to study fashion. I can tell you some of the comments is just like, why would you do that? Why would you leave your job making money um, in New York City at that? They're like, you're making good money in New York City. Why would you do that to go be a student again? And it was like, because it excites me. (laughs) Mm, (laughs) Like the excitement for me was like, I could study this. I mean, great. I've done it. I was like, what? I think it was like maybe about 10 years in of of designing. I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm good at this. I know I can design. I can sell some designs and do the whole merchandising bit. I could do that. But can I do the research bit? Can, I'm excited to sit down and research and see mm. what's out there. And I like, I hadn't done it for a bit, you know, since my master's. And I was like, I like research. I enjoy research, especially design-based research, which I didn't know, mm. again, know was a thing until I got here. And they're like, well, what kind of research are you going to do? And I was like, well, okay, well, what research can I do? <laughs> tell me what I can do and I'll tell you what I want to do. And they're like, well, do you, you know, you're a practitioner. Do you want to do design-based research? And I'm like, I can do that. And they're like, yeah. And I, then I just got all these books from the library. And I was like, that's the thing. Sitting in my practice, making bras, the thoughts yeah. that I, I you know, put into that, the thoughts that come out of that from my reading, the things, you know, the areas that I'm trying, even the materials, that's all a part of research. Mm. And I was never really taught that. So it was really exciting for me to find that out now at my uh, big age. of. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast really is supposed to be thinking about the difficulties that African diaspora researchers experiences trying to find themselves in the archives or experiences of African diaspora. And you've talked about you were, you didn't have examples to reference and you were told to just do women. And I completely understand that. But the thing for me is how did that change your approach to your research project? Because you have to design this thing, don't you? 
So if you if you don't have the evidence, because other people I've spoken to, we've talked about there's just no material in the archive or it's misdocumented and it's difficult to find. But for you, there was just nothing there. So this was something that I, I wrote about in my, my notes where I was just like, for the longest, I didn't, I thought I was going to come and research this. Like I was doing the research, but I wasn't a part of the research. I was just, you know, the, the hands just having it done, the brain that's sitting there. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I sat with my theoretical framework and realized, no, no, you are the conduit. You know, everything that you you sit down and, and co-construct and co-interpret with your participants, mm-hmm. you it's coming through you. You are part of that. You are not a wholly objective just sitting there. Mm-hmm. You're A, you're also a Black woman. <laughs> Uh-huh. you know, surrounded in your life with Black women within this yep. age group. So you're getting all of that from them and you don't really even realize sometimes that's that's shaping your interaction mm-hmm. and how you see this. So talk about it in your research. And I don't know, for the longest, I did not want to put myself in the research until... Mm-hmm. Um, because you're supposed to be objective, right? Exactly. And I wasn't quite sure if I had to follow this route and I realized, and it was because of um, professor Trevor, um, I hope I'm saying her name right. She said it a lot of times, but Trevor Lindsay. Um, and I went to this black feminist night school at Zora's house online. This was happening in Ohio. And so I would do these, these night school at midnight or sometimes one o'clock and I'm oh, sitting yeah. there awake. Cause I'm here in London and she's talking about her research and how she's getting herself. And so she reflects on herself and how it mm-hmm. comes through. And I'm like, Whoa, so again, I can like I can talk about myself and my research in this way. Mm. Like I can put myself in there. But then I, you know, I would get so excited after hearing her speak. I mean, who wouldn't? She's just so mm. like <laughs> enigmatic and just passionate. And and I was just like, I want to do that. And then I would stop and it would be the next day and the next morning. And then I would get a little hesitant again and say, How do I put myself? Mm. So I started um this interest group called Fashion and Ethnicity. And it's an interest group with a couple of other multiracial women. They we all talk about our experiences with fashion. And that was kind of my little <laughs> stepping my toe into okay, how can I talk about myself and how can I use autoethnography and it, you know, black feminist theory um, to reflect on my own experiences in fashion and how I came mm. to to experience lingerie and how I experience it now, which is, again, it's different from then how I experienced it in, in my early twenties. Mm. <laughs> and now it's like, you know, now even in this setting, I'm always, I'm so hyper aware of how I present myself in my clothing, mm. especially, you know, in academia where, you know, it can be a little lax when you look around you see people are a little lax, but you're, I'm aware I can't, I can't just be as lax as that. And I mean, yeah. I come from industry where you you have to present yourself every day. You can't just show up in whatever you want. And I remember I had an encounter where someone was like, oh, you're always so overdressed for school. And I was thinking to myself, well, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to say it. You know, I do have to leave my home and get on transportation to get here. I do have like a whole way of people seeing me. I can't just show up. Do you know what I mean? I, I would think that's more more to do with the Jamaican in you than it is to do with the, the professional in you. Because I remember my cousin came, she works for a government department in Jamaica and she came over here for some conference or something like that. And it's funny, the first day of the conference, I met her um, in central London and she came out and she was like, boy, I've just been sat in that room and I just don't understand how you British people come to work dressed like that. In any old She was way. like, you are supposed to be professionals. How can you go to, to, to into the office? Well, not only into an office, but into a professional environment 
as a keynote speaker and dress like that. And I'm like, boy, yeah. if she saw how I went to work every day, she'd be horrified. <laughs> that could be, you know what, that you're right. It could be how I was conditioned because if it's one thing my mother has instilled in us is you need to have an iron board and use it. <laughs> mm, mm. Even my brothers, I mean, my brothers would never leave the house without iron and which is funny, iron in their clothing. And you think, oh, you guys are ironing jeans. Oh, trust me. It might look wrinkled when they walk out, but they iron it because they know that's that's how we're conditioned. You iron your clothes mm-hmm. and then leave your house. So it's, I mean, when, when someone called that out to me, I, I didn't even think, you know, that that was a thing someone was watching me do, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I then became aware that I was being watched, <laughs> mm. which is a little shocking because you don't, think you're being watched you're just going about your day and then for someone to say well you're always so dressed up you're thinking to yourself wait so you're watching me you're taking notice of what I'm wearing I'm not taking as much notice but you are taking notice of me and so even in in trying to document how I, I I come to realize I'm actually fashioning myself when I leave my house both being you know objective of like this is how I want them to see me or this is how I want to present myself mm-hmm. but also it, it became such a thing for me because I, I again fashion has always been me reading other people's thoughts and wanting to know more about you know how they they come to clothing but never really seeing myself and now I'm just like wow I've really been affected by the dominant society in my presentation mm-hmm. I'm one of those people I don't really see this in other black people if that makes sense like dress how you want to dress it's freedom but then I'm realizing that I'm being watched in that way and that for me it was almost like the glass shattering around me it's Mm. like you never realize that and it's like okay (laughs) I think think as well it's because your experience as a black woman from America you will not have been the only black person in a classroom and so you wouldn't be the lone body in academia and I think whereas here, oftentimes we are the only person. And so the way you stand out becomes more obvious. And sometimes you try not to think about it and you might be going about your day and then suddenly you look around the room and you realise you are the only one. I, I've noticed that when I've gone here. I'm definitely, I think I'm more hyper where here <laughs> than when I walk in and I'm the only me. Mm, <laughs> and I, I'm just mm. like, you know, okay, all right, take a deep breath and let's go. But I am aware that when I walk into this room, I am the only me. And it, it becomes really like, I think it's it's one of those things that's twofold. When I then leave the room, I seek out <laughs> other Black people. I yeah, seek out to be yeah. around them and in their presence. Yeah. I, it's just like, I need this to just be able to continue on. But it's also like navigating this concept of, of, of fashion and being Black. It's like, we love clothing. I mean, we consume yeah. clothing. We do. But it's almost like, do we think about how we're being taught to clothe ourselves or present ourselves in these different situations? Yeah. Well, I, I, that is a conversation I've had with myself oftentimes. So I go to teach at universities. I do this deliberately. I will sometimes go in jeans, trainers, sweatshirts, caps, because I know that's not the way that I'm supposed to look. And I see a, a lot of my colleagues who have a particular style of dress. And I mean, I don't want to dress like that anyway in the first instance, because it's just not who I am. But I do deliberately present myself in a particular way because I know for some people it's going to make them uncomfortable. Yeah. And I've gotten to the point now, when I first got into academia, 
I just thought, I don't fit. This isn't the place for me. I'm going to have to be somebody different to fit within this space. But then I, I think when I was doing, maybe when I started my PhD, I just thought, you know what? This is me. This is who I am. I don't really care. I'm just going to be, it's more important for me to be my authentic self than it is for me to be somebody who you feel comfortable with. So you say this and... It was this um, this past summer, I did a presentation. I wrote on the title, it was called, um, Can I Wear This? Should I Wear This? Who is Allowed the Pleasures of Fashion? Interestingly enough, that's what I came to over Zoom. <laughs> over Zoom <laughs> this past summer, I realized I always toned down. I feel like I'm always toning mm-hmm. myself down because I don't want to be too much um, and I don't want to come across as too much. And I know that that is a thing. And I started playing around with, I know it's Zoom and they're only seeing you from chest up. But I, I realized I love to play with my hair. I love to play in my hair. I, you know, mm-hmm. I've had locks for a very long time. This is my, I, like, it was always my dream as a kid to, mm-hmm. when I was, I said to myself, when I became an adult, I'm going to have locks because my mother kept telling to me as a child, no, you can't have locks. You won't get a job. And this is something that mm-hmm. was told to her by her mother. Um, yep. so of course, she repeated it to me. And I, you know, I, I <laughs> promised her a lot of things. I promised her when I became an adult. <laughs> I will always have red nails. I would always wear red lipstick and I will always have locks. I promised her so many things, which I've kept my promise because I was going to rebel all the way through for her. I was going to teach her like, no, 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 this is me. You told me I couldn't do it. And now I'm doing it. So I, I, was, I would always like my hair. I'd always try to tie it back and not make it too, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I was like, you know what? I went out, got all my pins and I started doing my hair up and putting all of these like pearls and pins and, you know, faux jewels and cubic zirconias in there. And Mm -hmm. I was like, this is it. And when I would do it, I would feel like, whoa, I know that they're seeing that and they're probably thinking it's too much, but who's going to, who's going to take it off of me? Who's going to say it to me? I, I, (laughs) I dare you to tell me it's too much. You're just going to have to accept me being me and feel uncomfortable. I was so excited to be able to feel fully like, oh. I love this feeling. <laughs> I got dressed up today and I love, I'm, I'm on high. I love feeling like I'm dressed up. I'm a doll. But then I, I question, I'm like, okay, you do it now. You love it. You're still in your home. You're still in the safety of your home. When you go out in public and you start, you know, if the world ever goes back to public and you're in, uh, you know, these spaces, would you feel comfortable to then do it there? And so of course I, I study by study, I would go for a walk around the block with my hair all dolled up and, you know, mm-hmm. feeling all dolled up like I am. And I would get all the stares and the looks. And I mean, <laughs> I don't know what it is, but they are not like side glances. They're full on stares. No one cares to look away. Yeah. And I was just yeah. like, you know what? I'm okay. I didn't melt. I didn't cry. I don't care. I just blessed mm-hmm. you. You're, you know, what, what they call the eyegasm. I just gave you all of this. <laughs> and I'm still happy with how I, I look and how I presented mm-hmm. myself. And so it's even that I'm realizing how much I've been affected by trying to dim myself and to blend in, step back a bit, not to, you know, stand, not to stand out too much because too much it makes them feel uncomfortable, makes people feel uncomfortable. I think that's why it's so important that this idea about being objective in research, I just think is just complete and utter nonsense. And and for people like us, especially because we're having to deal with these sorts of, I don't know, negative associations on a daily basis it's so important for us to use research as an opportunity to think through who we are and so to as a method insert ourselves into that research in some way because at the end of the day I think in some aspects it'll help you come to terms with what your daily life experience is that was I think 
not I think I know for a fact that's what shocked me and once it started to open up for me I was oh, when I tell you I was terrified I was like I'm finding out so much more about myself that I had to mm-hmm. sit with and journal with like I I mean anyone who's, who knows me knows I'm quite confident in myself hey, I leave my house and I know I'm 100% doll um, mm. I am cute from head to toe <laughs> this is it I'm giving you but then it's like realizing that I'm, is this me because this is me and this is who I am? Or is this me because society has shaped me to be this way? Yeah. And I'm, I'm toiling with all of this and still trying to figure that out. Like, for example, I had a question, uh, a discussion with a couple of my colleagues in university where there, I was, the question was, would you leave your house without a bra? And one woman was saying, she's like, I haven't worn a bra in like 10 years. And I was like, out of your house. She's like, at all. And I was like, oh, okay. And then another person said, oh, I, I only... I wouldn't wear, I don't wear bras when I go like grocery shopping or I'm in my neighborhood. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying to them, like, they don't understand how shocked I am because mm-hmm. I wouldn't leave my front door without a bra on. I, you know, I don't, I would not, I would not think to exit my front door without a bra on. Oh, I mean, wow. there are a couple of things I'm like, I won't leave my house and that's earrings <laughs> and a bra. Those two <laughs> things are like dear to me. COVID's made me brave because I think before COVID, that was me. There was just no way I'd leave my house without a bra. Didn't care how uncomfortable the bra was, I was wearing a bra. But since COVID, I've hardly worn one. And I think I've tried to put one on twice in this whole period. And it just was so uncomfortable. I just thought, no. I, and I just resorted back to my sports bras. And my daughter laughs at me because I do have a, sometimes I just put on a big T-shirt or a big sweatshirt and go braless to the shop. And I think... If I tell my friend that, who's who's also Jamaican, she's horrified. She is horrified. But I'm just like, sometimes sometimes you just got to be free. <laughs> Listen, I, I understand. I'm just saying I'm going to be free. Oh, actually, I'm not going to say I'm going to be free because I wake up and put a bra on. <laughs> I'm like, oh, cuteness. Well, I volunteered to do something for a community group and I'm like, so I need some African diaspora scholars that look at fashion and textiles and we're looking at, um, I'm in my head, I'm thinking about Windrush generation. So it connects in that kind of way. And it's the same, it's the same suspects. It's the same suspects all the time. And the same people that I'm asking, cause I'm coming to you as well. So the same people that I've asked about the podcast are the same people that I'm asking about, this community project because there's so few of us i've noticed i've branched out to the u.s and i've there are a lot of i think it's ohio that i'm finding and i'm i'm literally i'm scouring their master's thesis i'm scouring their phd dissertations and i'm reading and saving all of the research that i'm finding from the states where they even mention black women in fashion one of my favorite databases, the Race and, and Fashion Database by yeah, Kimberly, yeah. Professor Kimberly uh, Jenkins. I, like, I, I think that honestly, that should be like the top find of the 2000s. At the end of it, when we're giving out awards, like we say, well, what happened that changed the world? This is changing literally the fashion world. I Everybody I talk to, I'm like, you know, there's this website and she has an amazing Instagram. They have a great Instagram that gives you the snippets of articles and you can then go and search it. And, and in a punchy, very like, lighthearted but very catchy way and I'm just like this is what I needed when I was an undergrad if I knew something yeah, yeah. like this did I probably would have just said screw going into the industry I want to continue <laughs> with learning mm. 
because it's like exciting to know that there's this wealth of information out there that helps you to understand your experiences. Especially I found one um, talking about shopping while being black and, you know, that, that can, that kind of, I don't know how to describe it, that situation, that experience of going into a luxury store um, while being black and, and navigating whether you're going to shop or whether you're not going to shop based on how you're mm. treated, where you're you're mm. invisible because they're not really paying you any attention, but you're mm. very much hyper visible because they're following you and looking yeah, at you through exactly. your eyes and that experience and how that affects how you engage with fashion. And I was like, whoa, someone studied that. Someone really mm. went out there and did that for me. <laughs> And into that experience, yeah, for me, because that experience is why I actually don't enjoy shopping in stores, and I tend to just mm. go online because I'm like, I don't really want to have to deal with, you know, yeah. the, all of that that comes with it. I just, you know, people say shopping for fashion should be fun, and I don't feel like it's fun anymore. It feels too mm. much anxiety-inducing, knowing that mm. I'm being followed or that I'm not being helped on purpose, and it's like I don't have time for yeah. that. So yeah, I really exactly. enjoyed being able to read this article and all these other articles that are out there that that are talking about fashion, even. Afro-Latina fashion. And I'm like, yes, this this database is amazing. And I just, I mean, I hope to- I've I've looked at it a few times. So it is, and I do agree, it is is game changing for those of us that are looking at race and fashion. But my final question, because you and me can talk all night, I know this. (laughs) My final question is, what do you think needs to be done to safeguard our histories for now and in the future? I mean, the race and- fashion database is one of the ways that we can look at it but do you have any personal perspectives outside of that how we can safeguard our histories to be first frankly I feel like we need to start documenting it um I don't think we documented enough Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I even now when I was talking with my grandma and she was telling me about my great grandma Edna Mm -hmm. who um used to design lingerie for the neighborhood girls in Jamaica because she worked Mm -hmm. for a meat and form factory and she just told I mean and I'm in my, you know, older, big age. And I just found this out. Like, <laughs> I didn't know this growing up. I didn't know this until now. And it's sort of, it sort of, for me, was like, whoa. So there's this connection. There's maybe this connection that's deeper for me, this thread in mm-hmm. my line of life of the, why lingerie, you know, means it's so, so much important. To me and it's so exciting to me. And it just mm-hmm. feels like it's within me. Um and maybe it's that. And it's also documenting that. I mean, when I sat down with my grandmother and just talked about lingerie with her, I was like, what? We, we like the same kind of lingerie. <laughs> and she was like, she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I have that same lingerie. And she was shocked. And I was like, she's like, why are you wearing that? I'm like, because I look good in it. She's, I'm like, why are you wearing it? You know, and she's like, because it gives her her shape. And I'm just like, to even be able to talk about that with her and have this down. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want, I really think that we need to document it more and talk to not just their fashion icons, which are usually yeah. celebrities, but, but our uh, everyday, everyday women. I yeah. know just when I tell you this growing up, seeing my mom and her friends go out, <laughs> I, I promise mm. you was like, not, I, I barely watch TV. So seeing them dress up to go out on the weekends was like mind blowing to me. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. Seeing the mm. fashions and I say this, and I hope my mom, if she hears this, this is not a dig mom. You know, her Jamaican <laughs> fashion mixed with her American pieces. I was like, what? <laughs> it was a, um, but now, you know, she has photos and I can look at these photos mm. and say, yeah, I, I was wondering what you were thinking. But I love the fact that I, <laughs> I was wondering what you were thinking. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was like, ooh. But now I'm just like seeing these photos. I'm like, I want to sit down and talk to her mm. and, and document these fashions because later on, it, it can be gone and, and it can be yeah. rewritten. Yeah. We know now how easily 
our ideas, our designs, you know, mm. our contributions can be rewritten yeah. and, uh, you know, given to someone else and to other groups as, as a their thing yeah. and not a, yeah. an us thing. So I really think we need to start documenting it. And a lot of it, even, okay, I'm a 90s baby, even some of the 90s fashion that's coming back mm. now. And it's like, mm. Who are the people that wore that? Let's talk to them. Let's interview them. Let's document before it's too late. It just documented before it changes. And we don't have those voices. I was thinking about the fact that we have higher education and we need to connect it. Do you know what I mean? Connect it with Mm. like primary or I think you guys call it secondary schools. Connect it there. So we can start showing them that there is this future if they so choose to go down this path and Mm. study fashion. Again, fashion sometimes seems so frivolous to everybody because they think Mm. it's dressing up and taking pictures. And I'm saying, take those pictures because that is documentation we need. (laughs) Take as many as you can. Like like I told you, I was telling you earlier, my my grandmother only has one photo of her mother, my great-grandmother. So I don't know what she wore. And thankfully, my mother would go to the the studio and get her photos done. So I have photos of what she wore um, when she was younger. So it's like, go out and, and, and try to documented and talk to the younger generation so that they can become interested in fashion and not feel like it's frivolous because I, I mean I don't know if times have changed but growing up I was often told that what I was studying was frivolous you know mm-hmm. even in high school they were like well what do you think you're gonna do you're gonna become a fashion designer or something and I'm like well why not that's what I'm studying <laughs> it's almost like that go do something real <laughs> And now it's like you're finding out that you can even just be a historian in fashion. I didn't yeah. know that. I did not know that until I was maybe in my undergrad that you can be a historian in fashion. I did not know that at all. So yeah, it's almost I didn't know like it in my you know, undergrad. Yeah, we need to open that up to say, hey, mm-hmm. you can be a historian in fashion and study, you know, your within your your culture, your ethnicity, whatever, wherever your neighborhood. Because I promise you, if we study fashion in the Bronx, whew. That is something to behold in itself because it is a mixture of ethnicities and cultures and we would all borrow and whew, be a hot mess together in the Bronx, okay? So it's even right. the idea of like bringing that back and, and introducing mm-hmm. that at an earlier age so people don't feel like it is frivolous and, and they can know that there is um, not just, I don't want to say career, but there's excitement within it and you can find mm-hmm. excitement beyond just like being told fashion is frivolous. Yeah, I, I think I would love that a lot. If 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 you create anything like that, I would come and talk to the youth. It's, it's the future. A, it's it's the future, Katie. It's the future. Thank you, Katie, and for your contributions today. It's the first time I've spent a significant amount of time talking about bras. My next speaker will be Lorna Hamilton Brown who's an independent researcher, artist, educator, and knitwear designer.